Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Well, it's not so good not to see you today, but it is great to be able to visit with you online and spend these moments together. And uh, by the way, before we get started, I want to uh, talk uh, just a second about what's coming up in the new year. You know, last year we did the uh, CBR journal, the Community Bible Reading Journal. And so if you are a member or a regular attender, we're going to do that again in the coming year. Uh, basically, it's just we're going to ask you to read one chapter a day and then share your thoughts uh, with other people uh, via text or email or in your community group. And it's been a great thing. We're going to also do the family Bible reading plan, and that's going to be uh, available uh, uh, to, to you as well. And, and so next Sunday uh, in our online service, we're going to talk more about the plan itself and the details uh, for the coming year. And we're, then we're going to keep bothering you about this all into uh, January as well. Now, today is a special day. It's the last Sunday before Christmas, the fourth Sunday of Advent. And you'll remember that Advent is a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. And in the church world, of course, we're talking about the Advent of the coming of Jesus into our world at that very first Christmas. And so for the last three Sundays, we've looked at uh, Advent themes uh, we've talked about the hope of Advent and how the nation of Israel waited for over 700 years for Jesus, the promised Messiah, to come. And then we talked about the peace of Advent and how the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, said that Jesus would come as our Prince of Peace. And then last week we talked about God's love and how Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, God who loves us, who comes near to us and welcomes us all. And uh, today we're going to be talking about joy. So the promise of Christmas is that Jesus has come to fulfill our hopes for peace on earth. And he's come as the ultimate expression of God's love. And his coming, therefore, gives us this joy that is way beyond what we can imagine. So take your Bible and find your way to Luke chapter 2, the familiar Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, and follow along as I read the first 14 verses. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, fear not, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. So today we're talking about joy. And I don't know about you, but for me, the word joy feels like a religious word. I mean, like when I feel good, I say, I feel good. When I feel happy, when I feel excited, when I feel energized, I don't say, man, I feel joyful. I mean, it it's, it's, it's feels like a churchy word. Uh, it has a religious tinge to it. However, in the Bible, the words for joy in the Greek and the Hebrew are not particularly religious words. They just refer to a good feeling like pleasure or happiness or gladness or excitement or any any of those, um, an out, outward expression of any of those feelings. So anything can cause joy, not just God. And in fact, the biblical authors frequently compare the joy that is God-related with the joy that comes from other things. A good example it would be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, where Isaiah is talking to God and he says, you that's God, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So the first joy in that verse is joy caused by God doing things in the kingdom, and that is, of course, it's a religious kind of joy, rejoicing in what God has done. But then Isaiah says that Religious joy can be compared to two other kinds of joy. First, there is the joy of the harvest, like, like um, oh, oh, all my hard work has paid off finally. All the grain, all these grapes, all these olives are in the barn. Or today it might be, yes, I just closed the biggest deal of my life. That kind of joy or excitement, that, that feels really good. Now the second example, it's just kind of weird. I mean, Isaiah says that, that the joy that comes from God doing great things in the kingdom is like the joy warriors feel when they divide the plunder. Now, interesting here, the English word warriors actually isn't there in the Hebrew, which makes this even worse. It literally is as they rejoice in dividing the plunder. Okay, so who's the they? Well, the they can be anybody. Uh, it could be anybody. I mean, it could even be robbers. Now, I like heist movies. You know, movies like Ocean's 11, Ocean 12, Ocean 13, and more recently, Ocean's 8. Um, they're, they're movies about um, intricate plans to rob someone with all these complex, tricky plots and, and betrayals and double crosses and all that kind of stuff. And and part of the formula of these kinds of movies is that there's this final scene where they all get together and all the tricks are revealed. And then they divide the plunder. And it's a good scene. It's a joyful scene. They're all happy. <laughs> and Isaiah says, the joy of dividing the plunder 
is like the joy of seeing God do great things in his kingdom. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that feel weird to you? It just feels a little bit off. Like Isaiah, are, are you sure you want to go there? Well, as it turns out, Jesus does the same thing. In fact, he takes it even further. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, so let's make sure we get the story straight. Let's say I'm a farmer. I've never farmed a day in my life, but let's just say I'm a farmer and I'm walking across my neighbor's land like I'm out one day and I'm shooting at some food and up through the ground comes a bubbling crude, black gold, oil that is, Texas tea. And I'm like, oh man, I, I, I found it. Well, what am I gonna do? Uh, I know, I gotta buy the field. I gotta buy the field, so how am I gonna do that? Well, I need an excuse. I, 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 I'm gonna go to my neighbor and I'm gonna tell him I got too many cows and I've got to build a barn and I wanna build a barn on his piece of land, on that piece of land. So I go to my neighbor, hi neighbor, how you doing? Uh, good, I'm fine, I'm fine. Hey, you know, I've got, I've got too many cows and I would like to buy this piece of land from you so that I can build a barn there. So what do you think? I mean, would you sell it to me? Oh, you would, well, well how much? Um, hmm, well, that seems kind of steep to me, but hey, I want to be good neighbors and all. And so, okay, you got a deal. And I, and I buy the land and I sign the contract and I walk home with my whole insides exploding in joy. Now, <laughs> that's joy according to Jesus. And Jesus says that joy is comparable to the joy in the kingdom of God. <laughs> What's Jesus doing? Well, first of all, you need to know that Jesus likes to provoke people. He likes to shake them. He likes to shake us up. So he connects two things that religious folks don't think should be connected. The kingdom of God and this deceptive neighbor or a lying thief. And his point is he's trying to clue us in that there's joy in the kingdom of God. And that joy is like the joy an unethical person feels when he's ripped somebody off big time and makes a killing. <laughs> I told you this is weird, but he's trying to help us to see that the joy of the kingdom of God is not abstract. It's experiential. It's intense. It's powerful. It's, it's life transforming. See, the Bible isn't so much interested in distinguishing between different kinds of good feelings, like joy and happiness and gladness. Now in scripture, they're really all pretty much the same thing. Oh, I know, uh, you have heard it said that there's a big difference between joy and happiness, and there's some truth in that, like being happy is most often related to good circumstances, happy circumstances, so and joy is something that transcends circumstances, and we're gonna talk about that. So yes, there's some truth in that, but that's not the way the Bible talks about it. It really doesn't distinguish between joy and happiness. The big distinction in the Bible is what is actually causing the joy. So what causes you joy? Well, different people get joy out of different things. There are a lot of people that got joy out of seeing Clemson won, uh, win last night. 
like now for me, I just celebrated my 66th birthday on December the 8th and Karen and I got uh, invited over to our daughter Christy's house for supper and Andrew, her husband, fixed this amazing meal and we had one of my all-time favorite cakes with angel food cake and strawberries and, and, and whipped cream and my grand, grandkids, Addie, Nora, and Will were there and well, you can see how you can see how happy I was here. I mean, I, I just, it was, it was a great night. <laughs> and uh, of course, Christy put all that on Facebook. But um, anyway, according to Jesus, the joy of the kingdom of God is like the joy of celebrating your birthday with people that you love. It's tangible, it's real, it's experiential. It's not mystical or, or religious. According to Jesus, Joy is something that we experience not only in the kingdom of God, but just in everyday life. But we do need to narrow our topic down a bit. When we talk about the joy of Advent, we're really talking about the joy of Christmas or precisely, more precisely, the joy that is caused by Christmas. And that brings us to Luke chapter two. Now the angel says to the shepherds, fear not, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. For today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you and he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. So the joy of Christmas is joy caused by Christmas. But let's get even more precise. What exactly is causing the joy? Now remember, this is before celebrating Christmas was a thing. So the joy of Christmas can't be family or food or gifts or Christmas carols or resting from work or Hallmark Christmas movies. Can't be any of those things. Now, uh, w without a doubt, we get joy from those things. But none of those things can be what the angel was talking about. So what is, what is it about Christmas that is supposed to cause joy? Okay, look at verse 10 again. Fear not, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you and he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. So, so it's good news that is supposed to cause great joy. And that is true, isn't it? I mean, good news brings great joy, like when you... You hear the news that you're pregnant, or when you hear the news that the tests came back negative, or when you hear the news that you got that raise, or, well, I mean, what is, what is some good news that you've heard lately that has caused you great joy? I mean, we, we've all experienced it. Good news brings great joy, but what kind of good news is the angel talking about here? I mean, it's not just any good news. The text says it's good news about a birth, but not just any birth. It's the good news of the birth of the Savior. So Christmas is about this news, the good news of a birth, the birth of a child who will grow up to become a Savior. Now let's not assume that we understand what it means to be a Savior. What is a Savior? Like, like today we've got all kinds of ideas about what a savior is, but back in the first century, they had very different notions about what it means to be a savior, and, and I mean, very different from ours today. So let's dig into this a little bit. Let's get into the background. 
At the time of Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And one day he said, hey everybody, listen up. I've decided we're gonna create a brand new calendar system for the, for the entire empire, and it's gonna start, with, start by counting from the year of my birth. And we're gonna do that because I'm such a great and awesome guy. Now that's my paraphrase, of course, but that's exactly what happened. It actually happened. And so this proclamation went out and uh, through, a, through the whole empire that they're gonna start year zero and that's gonna be the year of Caesar Augustus' birth. And so the proclamation went out and a recording of this calendar change was actually inscribed in stone. And archeologists have found these inscriptions in a city called Priene and these inscriptions are known as the Priene inscriptions and a part of the inscription reads like this. And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news concerning him, therefore let a new era begin from his birth. And he goes on to say the providence, which is like in the divine realm, the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for, every, uh, for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us to make war cease and to create order everywhere. So in the first century, the word savior and the word uh, good news, euangelion in the Greek, had very definite uh, political overtones. A savior is a military political leader who establishes peace and order and creates prosperity for all mankind. And so the announcement of the birth of a savior, well, that's good news. So at the time of the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus was considered the savior of the world. At least that's what the Roman Empire would like you to think. Augustus is your savior and you love it. And if you don't love it, the Roman legion will make sure you love it. This was inscribed around 9 BC. Now about five years later, a group of angels appear to a bunch of shepherds outside a little town called Bethlehem in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, and they say to them, we have come to proclaim good news to you, but it's way different than what you've heard. A savior has come, but he's not the one you know. So don't believe the Roman um, uh, propaganda machine. Don't believe what they're telling you. The savior is not Caesar. The Savior is not a Roman king. The Savior is the Messiah, or in Greek, Christos, uh, or the Christ. Messiah is the title of a Jewish king, a descendant of David, long predicted by the Jewish prophets. And the baby born this night is the one who will one day establish his reign over all the world. This baby in Bethlehem the angels say, is the true savior. And so the joy of Christmas is the happy, ecstatic feelings aroused by the announcement of the birth of a Jewish king who will one day rule over the world. Now, do you hear how bizarre that is? 
I mean, we, we Americans, we celebrate Christmas every year. And uh, that means we celebrate the birthday of a king every year. And this is very, very strange because we Americans, we don't have kings. We're a country founded on not having a king. So it's not surprising that we actually are kind of bad at celebrating the birthday of a monarch. I mean, look at these pictures of, of Queen Elizabeth here. This is her 90th birthday celebration. Now, what do you notice in these pictures? Well, they're all about her, aren't they? I mean, they're about her glory and her majesty. And the celebration is all about the people having a chance to express their joy at having her as their queen. But I don't think we get that so much because we, we make Christmas, you know, it's about us. It's about my family and my gifts and my traditions and, and stuff like that. I'm not saying that's, that's bad. It just is missing something here. And this is bizarre that we Americans celebrate the birth of a king. But it's not just weird in that way. It's more than that. We celebrate the birth of a foreign king. I mean, Joseph, Mary, we're not Americans. We have, we have definitive testimonial evidence that Jesus was not American. As far as we know, he's never been naturalized. But it gets even more bizarre than that. He's not just a foreign king, he's a foreign king from the Middle East. So we Americans gather every year and we celebrate the birthday of a Middle Eastern king. But it gets more bizarre than that. We celebrate the birthday of a Middle Eastern king who is out to transform the American way of life. Now, I'm a patriot. I love this country, even with all its faults and failings and shortcomings and all that. But seriously, if you think the kingdom of God is just a better version of America, you better read the Bible and see what it has to say about what happens when Jesus finally rules over the whole earth. Number one, the geopolitical entity known as the United States of America will not be the top, top dog in the world, and it may not even exist. And when the kingdom of God comes, it'll be the end of the Constitution. Number two, there's no more democracy. I mean, do you think Jesus is going to hold elections? Like, hey, vote for me. I died for you and your sins. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, you did that 2,000 years ago, but what have you done for me lately? No, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Number three, Jesus is out to change some basic features of the American way of life. Like, there won't be freedom of religion in the kingdom of God. Consumerism is gone. Free market capitalism is gone. Reliance on self-reliance is gone. And that's good news? Oh yeah, mark it down. Jesus is going to change America as we know it. And of course, he's going to do that with every other nation too. Are you seeing this? The, the, the good news that causes great joy is the birth of a Middle Eastern king who's out to transform the American way of life. <laughs> so maybe it's not so surprising that we associate Christmas joy with gifts and decorations and family and traditions and food because the joy that caused, that's caused by the actual message of Christmas is kind of weird. It is a peculiar kind of joy. Now let's take it one step further. The joy of Christmas is a joy 
that draws its strength and its intensity from the darkness and brokenness of our world. You see, to fully experience the joy of Christmas, you, you've got to feel the deep, deep dissatisfaction with the struggles and the conflicts of this world. You see, the Jews in the first century, they were living, living under occupation, and they were oppressed by a foreign power, and they were desperate for change. I mean, for 700 years, they lived under foreign domination, but there was always this faithful remnant of those Jews who were continually crying out to God, send us the Savior, send us the Messiah, send us this one that will deliver us from our enemies. And in the time of Jesus' birth, they were praying that, they would, that God would send a Messiah that would rescue them from the Roman Empire. And so they felt the pain and discomfort and discouragement of living in this broken world. But here's the deal. Their joy was not connected or determined by their circumstances. Now, thankfully, we live in 21st century Greenville County, or if you're listening online, somewhere else, but we don't live under any kind of occupation of a foreign power, and many of us would say, well, life's not that bad. But we do have eyes to see, and we see what's going on in our world, and we see war and violence and pandemics and injustice and oppression, and we see, or we should see, that the problems of this world go way beyond our fixing, way beyond simply changing who's in charge. And we see hatred and cruelty between nations and between people groups, but it's also, well, we see it in our families, right? I mean, there, there's conflict between parents and children and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and there's stuff piled on stuff and the aftermath of a lot of that stuff, it just doesn't go away. It just sits there and we can't fix them. So if we can't even fix the problems in our families, how are we gonna reconcile nations and, and ethnic groups and religious groups and racial groups? We live in a broken world. We live in a world that's ravaged by suffering and disease and death. And I know for some of you, this is gonna be the first Christmas after you've lost somebody that you loved. And this is a hard season for you. And I get that. And I want to tell you, it's okay to cry at Christmas. It's okay to grieve at Christmas. It's okay to hate death at Christmas because we're supposed to. We see cruelty and suffering and injustice and disease and war and violence and death. And sometimes we get to the point and we're like, God, I hate this. I hate it so much. I'm just sick of it all. And we see that there's got to be this fundamental change to this world because there's no, there's no fixing it. There's no tweak here or there, no tinkering around the edges, no cosmetic changes because what we long for and what we know we have to have is, is a wholesale fundamental rewiring of our, of our society and of our cultural values and of, our, uh, and of ourselves. We, we, we long for a new world, a new humanity, a world where things are the way they're supposed to be. We want change and we want to be changed. Do you feel that? If so, 
you're ready for the joy of Christmas. Because joy is an attitude that God's people embrace because of their hope in God's love and his promise to one day bring peace on earth, to bring God's shalom, his completeness, his rightness, his prosperity to this broken world. So the joy of God's people isn't determined by their struggles and difficulties. It's determined by their future destiny. You see, the joy of Christmas, it doesn't just come from the darkness in our world, it comes from the certainty of coming light. It's like stumbling in the dark for hours and then tripping over a flashlight. It's, it's being lost in the woods, woods for days, hungry and thirsty and exhausted, and then finding a road. It's being on a long road trip and holding it in for hours and then seeing the sign of a gas station. <laughs> See, the joy of, of Christmas comes from the hopeful anticipation of our future destiny, the future destiny promised to us by God. Our joy comes from the fundamental change that we know for certain is coming when Jesus, our Middle Eastern king, returns to set up his kingdom of peace in this world, and that is what the joy of Christmas is all about. The question, though, is how does this joy really become real to us? I mean, lots of people make promises. I mean, politicians and their slogans and professors and their newfangled ide ideologies and Silicon Valley gurus painting a glorious picture of some high-tech-infused future utopia. But most of those promises go nowhere. And, and, and a lot of them cause even more problems. So, so why do we Christians trust this Jesus person and his promises? Well, first of all, we trust Jesus because we believe that he is more than a human being. We believe that Jesus is God. He is the God who created the universe, and right now he's the God who's seeking to remake the world by transforming humanity one person at a time. So Christmas is not a celebration of another human savior wannabe. No, it's the celebration of the beginning of the reign of God. That's right. God's reign has begun. And for those of you who don't know that, you need to know that. And I know, I hear you, I hear you're saying, but Charlie, if, if what you say is true, if God is reigning over the world right now, then why don't we see more change? Why don't we see more good things? Why is there still suffering and all of this stuff going on? I hear you. So maybe this will help. To understand the joy of Christmas, you've got to understand this chart right here. Now the chart illustrates one of the big ideas of the Bible, and especially one of the big ideas of the New Testament. Theologians call it inaugurated eschatology. Everybody else calls it the now and the not yet or the already and the not yet. Now the chart is a timeline and it goes from left uh, to right. It starts on the left with the red line. That's the broken world that we live in and it's been broken a long time. All the way back to Genesis 3. This is Old Testament history. And then Jesus comes and he preaches that the kingdom of God has come in him and the cross is the moment of history when Jesus dies 
and he breaks the power of sin and darkness and death. And then he rises from the dead, and at that moment, we enter the final age. Let me say that again. At the moment Jesus died and was resurrected, we entered the final age. Jesus has become king. He is now savior. Right now, he's enthroned in heaven. The kingdom of God has begun, and that means that we who have put our faith and trust in him, we live in the kingdom of God right here, right now. But also notice in the chart, the two lines are now running side by side. The broken world has not yet ended, so the two kingdoms exist side by side for now. But one day, when Christ returns, the broken world will come to an end and the kingdom of God will go on forever. Now, this reality has profound implications for our lives for day, for today. Four implications, in fact. Number one, right now, we have peace with God We have received forgiveness and we are reconciled with God and that means that we can know God and that we can experience God and that we get to experience the joy of God. But that joy is not always clear. It's not always complete. It's not always full. It's a, it's, it can be, sometimes it's a struggle to hold on to it. Why? Well, because we still live in the circumstances of darkness and brokenness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul says, seeing God right now is like seeing God in a mirror. And by the way, mirrors in the first century were really crummy. They were not perfect reflections of reality. They were really distorted. I mean, see what I mean? Even if that was polished up, it's still not going to be like a mirror today. Now, I'll be honest. Seeing God in a really bad mirror actually describes my relationship with God sometimes. Like sometimes I think I see him and I see him at work, but it's just a glimpse or, or maybe that wasn't God at all. Uh, or uh, I, I want to experience being led by the Spirit, but I can't always be sure. I mean, sometimes it's crystal clear, but other times not so clear. Now, why is that? Well, because right here, right now, I can only see in part. And sometimes the part that I think I see is kind of blurry. But one day we will see God face to face and, 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 and it'll all be clear and our joy will be full and that's our future destiny. The second implication of all this is that the Holy Spirit has come. And that means that we Christ followers, we are a new breed of humanity, a God-infused breed of humanity. Now, you may not always feel that, and you may not always sense that. I don't. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit entered into your life, and he began working on you and transforming you by remaking you into the person that God intends for you to be. And we're moving along this path. We're growing, but we won't fully get there 
in this life, but we will. When Christ returns, you and I will, be, will, will fully become the people that God wants us to be. Implication number three, the Holy Spirit has come and established the new people of God collectively, the church, God's new community. Now, the church is the body of Christ, and it's called to live out the character of God in the world. We're called to live out the values of God in the world. But since every single one of us in the church, since we're not fully transformed yet, the church is n not what it ought to be. I mean, it's, it, the church itself is corrupted and broken and disappointing at times. We experience some of the good, but there's still a lot of problems. But one day when Jesus comes, the people of God will be fully whole. We will fully reflect God's character and his values, and everything will be the way that it is supposed to be. Finally, number four, Jesus has been resurrected, and that means that we live in this world knowing that the power of sin is broken and that death is going to die, and that is good news of great joy. And one day when we are all resurrected, death will be gone for good, and what a day of rejoicing that will be. All right, one final thought. I want to go back and unpack a bit more the relationship between joy and circumstances. Uh, for sure, there's a joy that comes because of good circumstances, like good health, good job, newborn baby, good family, close relationship, engagement, birthday parties, all those guys. These are all good things, and they're good things worthy of joy and celebration, and they're all good things that God means for us to enjoy. But we need to be careful that these joys don't blind us or dull us uh, to uh, the desire for things to really change fundamentally in this world. N no earthly joy should eclipse the joy that we find in Christ. Earthly joy should whet our appetite. They should make us long for God's kingdom to fully manifest itself in this broken world. So Christian joy enjoys the good things that God gives us, but it never finds its ultimate joy in those things. Also, Christmas joy or Christian joy, it's not about ignoring the darkness in our world. It's not about ignoring or suppressing your sorrow. That's not healthy and it's not necessary. This is not this uh, turn that frown upside down kind of thing or don't worry, be happy kind of Pollyannish look on life. I've met people, Christian people, who plaster on plastic smiles. Like, I don't know if you watch Everybody Loves Raymond, but Hank and Pat McDougal in Everybody Loves Raymond or Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's like, it's like th these are people who seem to go through life without thinking very hard about their lives or the world around them. And all they do is just drop in happy Christianese into every conversation. And there are people like that. And then there are people who are endlessly distracted by viral videos or must-see TV or Netflix or the, the, the newest offering from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
You see, it's possible to go through life being happy by simply filtering out the bad and cranking up the volume on the good, but I'm telling you, if that's where you're living, you'll never really understand the joy of Christmas. The joy of Christmas comes in the midst of sorrow. It is a joy that doesn't pretend. It it doesn't whitewash. It doesn't fly over the grime and the muck of this broken world. No, it's 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 a joy that's honest. It's a joy that knows that the struggle is real. And it's a joy that comes from knowing that God has begun to overcome sin and darkness. And one day he will bring it to completion. And knowing that allows us to feel the joy in the midst of the darkness of our world. And the crazy thing is, for a Christ follower, it can be that the greater the darkness, the greater the joy. We can grieve deeply and feel great joy at the same time. That's the testimony of God's people all through the ages. Paul has this little snippet in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where he describes this reality this way. He writes that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because it is one of the most comforting, assuring, solid, secure things about our identity in Christ. But God has made the heart of a Christian in such a way that it is possible for us to hold sorrow and joy in our hearts at the same time and our hearts not explode. It's possible to feel these two emotions at the same time and say it is well with my soul. When someone we love dies, when we experience the brokenness of relationships, a broken relationship or conflict, when we see cruelty and injustice and suffering in our world and when because of those things We feel hurt and angry and frustrated and disappointed. Then yes, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And we can say with Paul, I'm full of sorrow, and yet I'm rejoicing. Because we know this isn't the way it's going to always be. We who have put our faith and hope in Jesus and the promises of God, we know we know, we know that we know that we know that one day Jesus will bring all of these horrible things to an end and he will set right what is wrong with this world. That day is coming. And until then, as the brokenness and the kingdom of God run side by side, we are sorrowful yet rejoicing. Now, we can... We can hold sorrow and joy in, the heart, in our hearts at the same time, but listen to this, and I'm going to close with this, I promise. We can hold joy and sorrow in our hearts at the same time, and we can be okay, but not joy and fear. Not joy and fear. The angel said, do not fear. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people, which means that Because Christ has come, fear has to leave. Fear and joy are like oil and water. Fear and joy are not friends. They don't hold hands. They can't share the same space. Where there's one, the other simply cannot be there at the same time. Why? Well, think. 
Fear is about, well, this could happen, and then, then this could happen, and this could happen. Joy is about, this has happened, and this will happen. Fear is about the unknown, and joy is about the known. Fear is about, I don't know what's coming. What if this? What if that? What if this? Joy is about Christ has come. And he's changed everything, and he's coming again, and he will change everything for good. And all through the Bible, God's people, all through the Bible, they hold joy and sorrow in their hearts at the same time. And they not only survive, they thrive, but also all through the Bible, God is continually telling us, fear not, do not be afraid, do not fear, because either fear overcomes joy, or joy overcomes fear. And as you reflect on 2020, undoubtedly one of the worst years of all of our lives, what, what's happened to your joy this year? I mean, with COVID and polarizing politics and the election and division with families and churches, I mean, did you get hurt, betrayed, criticized, stabbed in the back, forgotten, pushed to the edges, left out, marginalized? Did you, have you lost your joy? Has joy left the building for you? One more time. You can grieve over all these things and still have joy, but if you allow fear to rule over you, it is impossible to know joy. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' life and his love to overcome all the darkness of this present world. And that is what Christmas joy is all about. So fear not. Joy has come. Fear not. Joy is coming, it will come. Fear not, Christ has come. Fear not, Christ is coming. That's what Christmas joy is all about. Heavenly Father, thank you that when you sent Jesus, you sent joy into this world. In the midst of darkness and pain and suffering and oppression, you sent a savior who promises that one day all of that will go away. And we will live in a world made new. And Father, right now, in the time in which we live, in these dark days with everything going on in our world, I pray that we, as Fellowship Greenville, as your church, that we would live out your character and your values in this world. Imperfect as we are sometimes, still, Holy Spirit, work in us. Continue to your work to change us to be more and more like Jesus so that people living in darkness can see a great light in us because of the change that Jesus has brought to us. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.